0: Welcome to another edition of Governed by God, a biblical look at law, civics, and government. My name is Eric Leupold. Thank you for joining me on today's episode. Now, before we get to our law of the day, I do want to point out that today's topic is going to be the start of another series, a series on idolatry and civil disobedience. And you might wonder how those two are related, and I do hope over the course of two or three episodes to really... Show you the connection uh, and how they apply. So, the first thing we have to do is talk about idolatry, which we'll get to in a second. But first, our law of the day is Exodus chapter 23, verse 13. Pay attention to all that I have said to you, and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. All right, it's a pretty short verse, uh, law given in the book of Exodus. And let's take a little bit of time to look at this law. Well, Uh, The context is that Moses has already given the Ten Commandments, has already given some other laws for the nation of Israel, and now he's coming towards the end of that section of law-giving, and he's reminding them to uh, remember how to live the way that God requires them. They're to pay attention to all the things that God has said to them through the prophet Moses. And they're not to speak about other gods and what other gods do and their practices and their laws and things like that. Now, we know that Israel has already had a uh, history of idolatry, issues already in the wilderness with the golden calf. So they're kind of at risk, if you will, for idolatry. Now, the issue here is not necessarily the literal words or names of the other gods. It's not like the names of these gods are like the Dark Lord from the Harry Potter series, you know, Lord Voldemort, you can't say his name he who will not be named. And if you say his name, something bad will happen. Well, that's not really the context here. The issue is that Israel is to avoid speaking about, conversing about, uh, inquiring about uh, other gods, to speak positively about other gods. And the idea here is to avoid the temptation of idolatry and rebellion. Now, in the New Testament, Jesus tells us that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So, thoughts lead to words which can result to actions. And the same is true with any kind of behavior, especially idolatry. So, Israel must take care not to start thinking good things about these false gods and not to make inquiries regarding how to serve those gods, how to tap into the powers of those gods or how to live the way those gods want them to live. That just brings them one step closer to idolatry, and God is trying to protect them. He wants to keep them from going off the cliff, and that's where the guidelines and the guide rails are. So the the bottom line, though, for Israel is that they're not to go to other gods with their problems. Don't try to be like the nations around you. Don't play with fire, like by, by... starting to talk about those gods and and teaching about them and asking about them and and really starting to think real good about those false gods. Now, let's bring this into some application. First of all, every society governs speech in some way. And a lot of us we govern ourselves in various contexts. I mean, how many times have you know, you had a friend who who holds nothing back. There's no filter and you say, "Man, you can't say stuff like that." Or if you're in a public place, you're going to lower your voice and we can't talk like that around them. Or you can't say that around her or around him. They get offended. Like we govern our own speech for various reasons already or even for our own safety. You know, if you're at a uh, sporting event for the home team, but you're rooting for the visiting team and you're very, very obnoxious and loud about it. Uh, you might get some nasty looks, maybe even a couple threats or curses, things like that. So it won't be very good for you to do that. And you might, you might just be more careful in the things that you say. And in the military, they have laws regarding uh, disparaging a senior officer, commanding officer. So you're you're not to sow rebellion or mutiny or discord among the troops. You're not to undermine the lawful authorities. And if you keep doing that, you can get yourself in trouble. Now, this law from Exodus does not have a civil penalty attached to it. There's no stoning, no fines or fees or anything like that. So, the idea here is not that Moses is going to go around hitting people whenever they say the wrong word. It's not, it's not necessarily a heresy law or a blasphemy law. Now, the issue, though, is that it, it's a warning sign. You start talking like this, And eventually, it will lead to something that does need to get disciplined. And there's other laws in the Old Testament regarding uh, actual idolatry and rebellion, trying to get other people to join you uh, in rebellion and to undermine the authority of God, the authority of the laws of Israel, their constitution, and establishing a false uh, system of government, another constitution, something like that. So, uh, speaking positively about other gods is a warning sign. That itself is not punished. Just keep that in mind regarding how you would apply this law in other contexts. Now, even today, um, you know the FBI would investigate any credible threat to the government. Uh, you know, if you were to post threats to the president, or Congress, or the courts on Twitter and Facebook, you might get a visit from the FBI—a little knock on the door. Now, you might not be arrested. But it would definitely get attention. And uh, when we take this law, its immediate application is in the church. Christians should not play footsie with other gods, with false gods. They should not be speaking positively about heresy and false teaching. Um, And these things are a warning sign. They could warrant possible future investigation. But there's no discipline to be done unless legitimate false teaching is being given, is present. Um, then you might take the next step of actually uh, disciplining someone. So the purpose of this law is to guide and to warn in order to prevent something worse from happening. Now, there are other applications, not just in the church, although that's the primary application, but you can take the principles and apply them to the family. Parents Typically, warn their children about dangerous speech. You know, a child might say something that's very close to rebellion, uh, and you might say, "Easy, there, son. Watch what you're doing. Be careful." Um, you might also, uh, you know, give other warnings in other contexts. You know, "Hey, you can't say stuff like that. Hey, don't you don't speak like that to your mother, or to your grandmother." Now, of course, actual rebellion would be disciplined. If you, if that child were to do that, you might uh, discipline them, uh, you know, take take a toy away or put them out of time out or, or something like that. So um, there's an application to the family. And of course, in society, lawful governments have every right to investigate certain speech against them. That the speech that I'm talking about, though, is not just things they disagree with. Disagreeing or even legitimately criticizing your government is not an issue. That's not what's being talked about here. The issue is undermining the ultimate authority, essentially the Constitution, um, inciting rebellion or treason could be a problem. Uh, So that is what we're talking about, and that's how you would apply this law into other contexts. So anyways, that is our law of the day. So let's get now into the topic of idolatry. So this will kind of be a part one. I don't know how many parts this will be. Um, might be two or three, we'll we'll see, Uh, just kind of whet your appetite. I do plan on showing how something going on today in our culture, such as masks and vaccines, could be an issue of idolatry. It could be. I hope to show you um, how that can be the case, Um, maybe not in this episode, but in a future one. So when we talk about idolatry, it is the act of placing someone or something In the place of God. Pretty simple definition. And probably the best passage to talk about this is Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. That's kind of the key text here. Paul first starts off talking about the wrath of God being revealed from heaven against ungodliness. That's verse 18. But then he says in verse 21 For although they, he's talking about the world, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or gave thanks to them, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Uh, Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So you have this exchanging taking place where you you swap out the glory of God. You don't want that. You don't want anything to do with God. And of course, you know, uh, you can't just have a vacuum. That gap is going to be filled by something, and so you will fill it with a glory for images, some kind of created thing, anything that's created by God. It could be animals creeping things. It could be the sun, stars, the moon. Uh, All those are examples of idols throughout Scripture. But it really comes down to refusing to give to God what is rightfully His and instead giving it to a false god or an idol. And the idol is typically a god made in our own image, whether we make it ourselves you know, you just think of something that you want to worship, you carve it yourself or whatever, you make your own idol, or you pick something that appeals to you. Maybe somebody else has an idol and they do a really good job of convincing you to join them in their idolatry and you're like, okay, I like that one right there. That's, that's what I'm going to do. And it's not as simple as just a, an object. Um, behind every idol is an, is an idea a concept, a belief system. Usually, physical objects are just a resemblance, uh, a way to to ground that false god in the real world. Anyways, um, the idol, when we engage in idolatry, uh, is expected to act like God. So we go to the idol to meet our needs. Okay, we have a particular need, a particular desire, whatever problems we have, and then we want them solved or fulfilled. So we go to the idol and hoping that it will do something for us. It will save us, preserve us, protect us, bless us, reward us, all those things, punish our enemies. But of course, all idols, just like any god, demands obedience. It requires something. And what the idol demands from us is sacrifice. All gods require sacrifice. The one true God required sacrifice, but Jesus Christ provides for it. He provides the ultimate sacrifice because of sin. But false gods demand sacrifices from us. It could be time. could be treasure. It could be relationships. It could be actual people. Just consider the worship of Moloch, which involved human sacrifice, or the Aztecs who engaged in human sacrifice. So the idols demand something, and they make false promises, promises they can't keep. They offer to fulfill the need, to meet the desire, but at the end of the day, they can't deliver because they're not real gods. Only the real God of the real universe can really do things and can really make things happen and um, change the world and affect our lives. False gods can't do that. So all their promises are foolishness. And another good passage, if you want to learn more about this, is Isaiah chapter 44, which is, again, uh, an extremely important passage, uh, starting in verse 9, going on to verse 20, is called the folly of idolatry. I will read this section because I think it is very important, and I want you to see how Isaiah explains the foolishness of idolatry and and really how silly it is. He starts in verse 9. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit are witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. All right, that's kind of his preamble. Now, verse 12 is his actual description of, of the act of idolatry. So let's read this. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house he cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. And then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself, and he says, Aha, I am warm, I have seen the fire. And the rest of it, he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes, so that they cannot see, and their hearts, so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, Half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray. And he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? All right, that's the end of that passage there. So the idea, the irony of this whole uh, story put forth by Isaiah is that the person delivered himself he did all this work of fashioning a tool and growing a tree and cutting it down, making a fire, cooking his own food, hunting his food, and basically fulfilling his own needs. But then he goes on and makes this idol, and then he asks the idol and begs for the idol to rescue him and to deliver him. And the foolishness is that the guy already did it. The guy did it with his own work, and he just made this God. Uh, so how is it possible this God is going to deliver him? And so when the man holds this idol in his hand, he's holding a lie, Uh, the lie that makes false promises, and that's ultimately foolish. He doesn't even even consider that there's a lie in his hand. Now, we can see modern examples of this in drugs and alcohol. Just consider the fact, you know, holding the bottle in your hand, holding the bottle of pills in your hand, all of that is man-made objects, just like that. Just like that one statue, it's no different. The principle here is that they're all man-made objects that someone is turning to for deliverance, for satisfaction, to fill an emptiness, to fill a void, and to basically deliver them from their problems. Maybe it's escapism. Just getting that hit, getting that high, or drowning your sorrows, right? Washing over your sins and your failures and mistakes and trying to forget everything bad that happened. Well, that's a a type of deliverance. You're asking for deliverance, although it's only temporary and it will never fully satisfy. But you're turning to this false god to do it for you, to make you feel strong and powerful, to escape from reality. But these idols will never fully satisfy, and they always demand more sacrifices, more money you have to spend on drugs or alcohol, more effort to to gather them and to get them, and maybe to sacrifice some relationships, uh, maybe take some money out of the account or start stealing, or something like that. Like, bad things begin to happen because of that. And what's interesting is this is not just a thing that is recognized by Christians. Um, growing up, I used to listen to a lot of heavy metal music, and one of my favorite bands was Metallica. And some of their songs that are are a little bit more quiet and not as uh, intense I can still listen to. Um, A lot of it I just lost a taste for heavier metal. But there is a song, a very popular song, called Master of Puppets, and it was written a long time ago, I believe in the the 80s, maybe the 70s, late 70s, early 80s. I have to double-check the time on that. But the song, if you read the lyrics is written from the perspective of a drug, presumably cocaine. But the, le- the lyrics talk about how this drug is affecting the user. And the drug is personified. And there's a, a, a couple times throughout the song where the drug says this. It says, taste me and you will see more is all you need. Dedicated to how I'm killing you. So the idea here is that it's just never enough, and the, and the drug is trying to kill the person. Um, but you just need more. Just need more and more and more. It's never going to be enough, but the result will be death and destruction. So this is the downward spiral of idolatry. Like I said before, the idol lies and never keeps its promises. So when the idol fails to do what you think it will do, what choices do you have? Essentially, there's three choices. Uh, First, you could turn to the one true God, repent of your idolatry, and be free from it. And that is, of course, the correct answer and the ideal answer. Second, you could continue with the same idol, basically convincing yourself that the reason it didn't work is because you need more of it, Okay, or you weren't as dedicated to it as you should have been. And if you only just recommit yourself stronger and more intensely, the idol will work. It will succeed in accomplishing the goal that you wanted to accomplish. Or, you know, you, there may be, maybe uh, there were some obstacles that, that got in the way that prevented the idol from working. So you just got to remove those obstacles. But either way, you're sticking with the same idol. That's what you're doing. You're recommitting to the same idol with more fervor and dedication. Okay, that's option two. Option three, find a different idol. Okay, you're going you're gonna to quit that idol. That doesn't work. And you're going to go to a different one. Something that maybe offers similar promises, but looks like it's better. Looks like it's more likely to succeed. Now, a new idol is just going to make its own demands for sacrifices. And the same idol will just keep making more demands. If only more sacrifices are made, if only you just did a bit more, if only you just got another hit, if only that person just didn't get in the way from you reaching your goal, you would have joy and peace and happiness. So that's the idea there. Now, idols can be man-made objects, but there are always ideas first. And Paul highlights this in the book of Colossians. Uh, He kind of does it in passing. But in Colossians chapter three, verse five, he talks about putting away sinful or evil deeds from amongst the Christians. And he says that we are to put away all covetousness. But he says covetousness is idolatry in verse five, Colossians chapter three. So if covetousness is idolatry, what is covetousness? Well, you can covet anything. You know, thou shalt not covet, right? It could be any any object. It could be prestige and power and, and position, uh, wealth, all that stuff can be can be coveted, something that you deeply desire, so much so that you're willing to sin to get it, um, and that is idolatry. And a person can covet many things. Now, a kind of a a common example of this in popular culture and good writings and good stories is, for those who are familiar with the Lord of the Rings, the creature Gollum, because in that character, Gollum is a creature who hates and loves the ring of power, which he's addicted to. He's had it in possession for centuries. Uh, The ring corrupted him and and enslaved him to itself. So it's his precious, right? So you'll hear that that phrase a lot in the Lord of the Rings, my precious. Gollum considers the ring to be his precious, but he hates it and he loves it. All right. And there's kind of a split personality there where, He's kind of a, an, an evil character, but then there's a good side to him that tries to you know do the right thing and resist but at the end of the, at the very end of the story of the Lord of the Rings spoiler alert Gollum is so intent on having the ring that it leads to his death you know he he fights Frodo for the ring and ultimately gollum gets it he 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 wins the ring but in doing so he falls off the cliff into the uh, the fire, into the the lava of Mount Doom. So Gollum's obsession with it is so great um, that even as he falls into the lava, he has a look of joy on his face. And that is, it's, it's actually done very well in the movie because you'll see him, as he's falling, he's hugging, he's clutching the ring to his chest with just delight that, that it's his. And even when he hits the lava, uh, he doesn't scream in pain. He keeps his eyes fixed upon the the ring until uh, he finally dies. Like even as he sinks all the way down, his eyes just never stop looking at the ring and he holds the ring up high to keep it safe from uh, the fire while he himself dies. And if that's not a, I mean, that's like one of the best pictures of essentially idolatry. You're just so focused. You're you're, you're just dedicated to it, but it just ultimately kills you. Now, going back to the scriptures, um, in the book of Ezekiel, there's another uh, passage here that shows us that idolatry is not just about physical objects. Because in this section, uh, and I'll just read this here, uh, Ezekiel 14, verse 4, the prophet Ezekiel is criticizing the elders of Israel, so the religious leaders of Israel, because they're engaging in idolatry. And uh, here's what um, is said in the book of Ezekiel. Therefore, speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, any one of the house of Israel who takes his idols into his heart and sets the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face and yet comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him as he comes with the multitude of his idols, that I may lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel who are all estranged from me through their idols. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Repent and turn away from your idols, and turn away your faces from all your abominations. For anyone of the house of Israel, or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel, who separates himself from me, taking his idols into his heart, and putting the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face, and yet comes to a prophet to consult me through him, I, the Lord, will answer him myself. So, twice we see in that passage the idea of taking the idols into your heart. Now, why, what is that? What is that referring to? Well, in scripture, the heart is not just a place of emotions. That's actually not. That's a misunderstanding. The heart is the seat of authority and decision making. It's who you really are deep inside. It is your. It is you. You when you take something into your heart like that, you are adopting it as yours. That is yours, and that is the uh, the idol is in control basically of you when you take that into your heart, and this idolatry only leads to death. Um, The ultimate sacrifice, of course, that idolatry demands is the life of the worshiper. It doesn't start that way, but it gets there eventually. Um, And consider this, if God is the source of life, then idols, that which is not God, if you try to put them in the place of God, becomes the source of death. We see this in Proverbs 8, 36, where where wisdom is personified, and actually I'm going to start in verse 35 because they're, they're so closely connected. But wisdom is personified and says this, For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. So those who hate God's wisdom, those who hate biblical truth and biblical wisdom, essentially those who hate God, who himself is wisdom, the way, the truth, and the life. All who hate him love death. And if you love an idol, you're loving death. And eventually, that is what you will get. And to kind of tie it back to Romans chapter 1, if you continue to engage in idolatry, it's a downward spiral in which these ideas will lead to wicked practices. And eventually, the Apostle Paul um, ends in Romans uh, 1 verse uh, thirty. 32, I should say, that he says this, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. So, idolatry, in a way, loves company. The, idol- the idolater uh, is suppressing the truth and knows that he's rebelling against God, but he doesn't want to be alone, and he keeps going further down this path and seeks others to join him in his idolatry. But it ultimately only leads to death for everyone. So, anyways, that's a good place to stop for today. Uh, Just kind of running out of time here. But I just wanted to give you a look at what idolatry is. And next time, we're going to look at how to detect an idol. I mean, you should already have an idea based on those passages that I just mentioned. But we'll take a look more about detecting idols. uh, Some of the key differences and similarities between God and idols and what an idol, like an idol can be a a good thing that's twisted or it could just be a purely evil thing. Like, you know, how, how can you identify idols in a culture? So, Uh, Thank you for tuning in today. Again, if you like the episode, like the show, please uh, send it to a friend. Share the link. Share the episode. Give the thumbs up, stars, reviews. All those things help. And, of course, you can email me at thegbgpodcast at gmail.com if you have any questions, concerns, or other topics you'd like me to address. And so, thank you again. Until next time, take care, and God bless.